Welcome to the New Books Network. That's my steak, Balance. Well, you heard him, dude. Pick it up. Oh, Pilgrim, hold it. I said you, Valance. You pick it up. I'll get it, Liberty. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. What's the matter? Everybody in this country killed crazy? Here! It's picked up! Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. Today we have a request, another listener request. This is for Travis. And Travis put on Twitter or an X as we now call it, you guys have to do this movie. So what movie are we doing today, Mike? The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed, of course, by John Ford, 1962, the screenplay by James Warner Bella, who also wrote Fort Apache, and Willis Goldbeck, who also wrote Sergeant Rutledge. You got a lot of Ford people here. Based on a short story by Dorothy M. Johnson, who wrote the story of a man called Horse. So we got a lot of horses, a lot of Westerns in here. In part one, we always talk about our overall take on the movie. Mike and I, we have loved this movie forever, forever, forever. right? And we both watched it again for today's show. So in part one, we talk about our overall take, what struck us this time. So Mike, what do you got? This movie does a, an excellent job of universe building with only a couple sets. It really raises an entire town. It creates shinbone really out of nothing until you know how all the streets intersect with one another and where buildings stand in relation to one another. This movie is this movie is absolutely brilliant in both being everything that a Western should be, but also commenting on the Western genre. And in, in that way, it's a deeply American movie in the sense that it, it's about how the sausage is made, but also how the how it's served on the plate. And I, I Dan, what do you what do you think? What's your favorite thing about this movie? I'm laughing because you say it's a movie about the, because, of course, like every Western made after like it seems 1965, everyone says, well, you know, it's really about the Western. Like, you know, the quick and the dead is about the Western. Unforgiven is about the Western. But actually, in this case, it actually is true. I think it does hold up. Here's what I think. I think that, you know, watching it again, what you said about universe building is so true. There is such a great array of minor characters that all work together in kind of the way like you know they did on the sopranos until they all became major characters that's my beef with the sopranos but you get the sense of world building so much goes on in the back room of the restaurant you know in shinbone and you can see what doors people go in and where they move and who people are that's really great i was i was totally struck this time by the by how ford shows us the unease these people have after they come back um there's there's so many great scenes where people don't make eye contact when Helig first gets in the carriage in the beginning, she says to Andy Devine, oh, maybe we'll go for a ride. He's like, well, do you? and they both know where she wants to go. But there's that great, great tender moment. But also what you just said about Shinbone, this movie perfectly combines the fates of its characters with the fate of the country. 
it, it does that in, in a beautiful way that's not forced. Like Ransom Stoddard's career is like the career, so to speak, in air quotes, of the United States. You know, what happens in Shinbone with that whole election scene and how he go, goes to Congress, right? That's that's a part that represents the whole of the country, right? What's the first thing we see in the movie? Do you remember the first thing you see? The train. The first thing you see is the train. And what's a train mean? Progress. You know, this 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 Shinbone's going to become a stop on the railroad and it's going to bring in all these other things. And that's great because they get a school and they get a library and everything builds up. But that train is belching out black smoke too because progress can be really dirty. And the movie's great because it puts you in the headspace of like three people. You have, you have John Wayne, you have Jimmy Stewart, and you have Vera Miles. And they all have different opinions of like what progress is and how you deal with it. Because I guess there's four if you count Andy Devine. To me, watching it again, it struck me, you know, Liberty's name. Now, you know, of course, why is he named Liberty? Because the the West can't really begin. It can't flourish in the way that people want it to flourish unless absolute freedom to do whatever you want is dead. Yes, because that's what progress is, right? He has liberty to do whatever he wants. So progress is all about restraint. Progress means you have to deal with evil. Progress means you got to control certain liberties and True liberty will turn people into animals, it seems, in this in the world of this movie. True liberty means you go around with a whip and you just take somebody else's stake and you just do whatever you want. Um, you can rip up books. It doesn't matter. So how do you deal with it, right? So so Jimmy Stewart, the way you deal with it is, I'm going to put you in jail. And John Wayne is like, you know, in True Grit, he says, you can't serve papers on a rat, baby sister. That's what you do. Vera Miles is kind of like, just don't get involved. I guess Andy Devines is like, just hide, <laughs> hide behind a door until he leaves. Um, the newspaper guy, you know, Evan O'Brien, his, his take is, well, capitalize on it. It sells a lot of newspapers. But I think the movie puts you in the spaces of all these heads. And it's not black and white like it like they all have legitimate points about how you're supposed to deal with 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 this new place and jimmy stewart's got a point and john wayne has a point and and uh and i think that's what's interesting about the movie is it puts them all in one one movie and says okay now now it's like a petri dish we're gonna see what happens it works kind of like a manipian satire where it's it's supposed to take all different kinds of voices and set them in polyphony against one another and i i think that it does a really great job undermining the concept of a dominant voice because because there isn't one. But it's really hard to make a plot work unless you have one. It is I think the tricky thing about uh, the tricky thing about the movie, right? Because the movie will literally go nowhere unless you pick a dominant voice. That's why people don't like manipian satire, right? They they tend to ramble on. For you to have a propulsed narrative in the middle of that kind of structure is really difficult because the propulsion of the narrative would tend to elevate one voice. And so the movie takes the rest of the time trying to drag it down. And I think that the movie in that way is it's literally democratic in its structure. So the first yes. thing it does is it takes it takes the town and it means it literally. It goes, OK, this town is now this town is the U.S. And so each person is a person, but also stands for the people. And then it says, OK, great, you can all vote, uh, but some of you are illiterate. And also some of you can't vote, right? And and that that adds layers of complications on top of the the action of the film, because that form of democracy democracy feels very claustrophobic. It both glorifies democracy and then says democracy is a Swedish woman who can't read and can't vote. And right, but but understands the ideals of the United States with the picture of Abraham Lincoln in the background. And you say, that's both, well, that's both wonderful 
and maybe not so wonderful. And the person who's who's dictating what democracy is in the town is the person who's teaching her right. to read and, and everybody else. And so, you know, wh when you think democracy is some unseen person that you can't see, you assume that they have great values. Maybe they formulated their opinions. But when, you know, when you're told like, well, democracy is like your next door neighbor, you're like, oh, man, that guy doesn't even take his trash out on time. You know, it's it's it, it, it both it's both beautiful and flaw exposing like any other sort of light. And I think that that the literal democracy of the film becomes claustrophobic over time, but has a but then again, has a tendency not to prefer one one voice over the others. It doesn't prefer them. And I was going to go back to what you just said about this dominant voice business. What's interesting about the movie, and it has to do this, the more I think about it, because otherwise a movie won't work, is that every voice is not going to equal piece of the pie. Every voice does not have an equal claim on the viewer. So Andy Devine, he has a voice in there, but nobody would want to be him. Nobody would want oh, Liberty Balance. Um, nobody would want to act like him. Nobody would want to look like him. I mean, that's that, he's there for, for laughs. It comes down to Jimmy Stewart. And it comes down to John Wayne. It's like how in the Dark Knight movies, right? Of course, like what what is um what is Commissioner Gordon's problem with Batman? That he breaks the law. Right, exactly. But of course, like who, you know, if you were in trouble, who would you want to jump off of a building and take care of the bad guys? Batman. Right, exactly. Right. So you, the movie puts up the Dark Knight movie set up that dichotomy, but you're clearly on Batman's side. And as you remember, I just thought of this. Remember in the beginning of the Dark Knight, there's all these other guys pretending to be Batman? And then you have too many Batmans and they really can't do it. Like you only have one. So this movie kind of does the same kind of thing. You're on Jimmy Stewart's side because he's Jimmy Stewart. And he's the, the most likable person ever to stand in front of a movie camera. You're on John Wayne's side because he's also like one of the most charismatic people to ever be in front of the movie camera. And it kind of puts those two together. And I think they both have a point. But the, those are the two dominant opinions. But the sh the shades and array of opinions is really what I find striking. No one would ever want to be the sheriff but they don't make him unlikable. Oh, absolutely. They spend, they spend right? They, what they do is they spend, if you think about the amount of time that he has on screen, they spend 50% of the time making him odious, but then another 50% of the time making sure that you can't feel that way because he's also funny um, and he's also gentle and he's got a funny voice. And at the end, when Liberty Valance is dead and the other two guys, he's like totally fine to throw the other two guys out, right? Because the, the main barrier his barrier to valor has been removed and he's he's happy to stride his way in there in as far as he can. Other movies, like you just said, you know, this movie is a genuine democracy in Shades of Grey. Other movies, I was just talking about Batman, um, will have a, have a dichotomy, but it really is kind of a fake dichotomy. So think about High Noon. Like, like, you know, there's a dichotomy there. There's Will Kane, and of course, Grace Kelly is, is, is the um, Quaker who doesn't believe in violence. Well, which which one of those do you want? And as you remember, Grace Kelly takes up the gun at the end. So she kind of goes over to his side. There's no ambiguity in High Noon. Like those guys are coming literally at noon and you have to take care of them and you can't reason with them and you can't put them in court and Grace Kelly can't pray with them. That's why you still have lawyers, but it's really hard to find Quakers. Welcome back. So in part two, of course, we always talk about key scenes or the scenes that kind of demonstrate the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, why don't you kick it off for us? 
So I think this scene demonstrates the themes, but it's also probably my favorite scene in the movie. And it's so well directed. I love all the stuff that goes on in the restaurant, like that that John Wayne knows to go in the back door and you get the behind the scenes in the kitchen. Then then you get the public space in the dining room. So my moment is when they have the fight over the steak, when Liberty Valance comes in and then he trips Jimmy Stewart and he, he drops the steak and then John Wayne's standing there and uh, Jimmy Stewart has his apron on, of course, and he starts screaming, there, there, now it's picked up, it's picked up. Has everyone in this territory gone kill crazy? <laughs> that's, that's very good. And that's exactly what he says. So that moment is so great when John Wayne and Lee Marvin are staring at each other and Jimmy Stewart is all gangly in a flutter in the background. Like those two guys have like the dignity of stillness, right? They're just looking at each other and Jimmy Stewart's in the background. And I love how like he drops the steak at first and he picks, like even the prop doesn't really work. It, it's so well done. And what I love about that moment is this, you probably know this, that Jimmy Stewart was an, was an aviator and was a pilot in World War II. You knew, yeah, you knew this, right? So yeah. there's a great book by this guy, um, Robert Matson. I read a couple of years ago called Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. And I just want to go into this a little bit for my moment. So Jimmy Stewart's the first big star to enlist. It's 1941. He already knows how to fly a plane because that was one of his hobbies. He wants to enlist. Of course, the studios are like, no way. Like you've done the Philadelphia story. You're not doing it. He says, listen, I'm doing it. We're going. Okay. They try to keep him out because of his weight. He gains weight. He gets in there and they say, all right, um, you can, you can teach people how to fly. You can do that. So he's like, okay, there's no air force yet. He's like the army air corps. He teaches people how to fly. He's 33. And he says, I want to fly combat missions. And they say, no, 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 no. But they eventually they give in. He ends up getting the distinguished flying cross. He gets 20 medals. I, I'm sorry. He did 20 combat missions. He gets a chest full of medals. Unbelievable. And even more impressive he gets back. The first movie he makes when he gets back is It's a Wonderful Life. And he says, you're not allowed to use my war record to market the movie. Now, think about it. That's amazing, right? That someone will be that. Like, p p stars today are like, you know, I, I ate half a blueberry muffin. And it has to go all over Instagram or something. He says, well, I'm not talking about it. I, I don't I don't want to. I don't You can't use that to sell the movie. That's unresponsibly sourced blueberries. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> now, of course, we have John Wayne. And what do you know about John Wayne in World War II? He didn't go. He didn't go. And there's and and if you read the biographies, you know, he said, oh, well, he had four kids, so I couldn't go, and I got to defer it that way. Um, I, uh, he had already made Stagecoach. I mean, that was 1939, and he was like, oh, what's going on? So a, a kind reading of John Wayne is um, he thought he could do more for the war effort at home, which is what the studio wanted him to do by making all these movies at like the Sands of Iwo Jima. Um, but he didn't go, and it bothered him his whole life. John Ford, the director, was in the Navy. He was on Omaha Beach, so he went too. So why do I tell that whole story? Because, of course, the famous line from this movie is, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Print the legend. And that scene is exactly what print the legend's about. Nobody who didn't know the backstories of these guys would think that Jimmy Stewart was the one that did 20 combat missions in the Second World War, who was a squadron commander, who then is in the Air Force and does you know B-52 observations in Vietnam later in his life. John Wayne makes the Green Berets, you know, a, a notoriously terrible movie about Vietnam, but never went there. And I think it shows you the power of movies that, that yeah, we laugh at that line, print the legend. Oh, yeah, it's all fake. You know, that's what the title means, et cetera. You know, Stoddard's whole career is built on a lie. But those lies are really powerful because when you watch that scene, 
if you don't know, there's no question who an unassuming viewer would think was the war hero. And I think it shows you the power of movies. And I even think that that, that idea of print the legend, not only is it seeped into Shinbone, but of course it seeped into that room because everybody thinks, you know, obviously that Tom Donovan's a tough one. But of course, you know, Jimmy Stewart is the one that ends up, you know, uh, living at the end and, and basing his whole thing on this lie. So what's your moment? My moment is when they're in the schoolhouse uh, and they're they're everyone's going over their their ABCs and the the Swedish restaurant owner is explaining how the United States works um, in the in the room in the room full of people, because I think it's it's the kind of scene that could easily be cut. Um, and it, it, you know, again, it's a two and a half hour movie and it's clear that John Ford needed every scene in the movie to make it work otherwise it's it's not it's not going to work but i could see another studio saying okay we, like we got to get it down to two hours so we're going to cut part of this part of the schoolhouse scene but um i think it really draws home the the themes of the film as a whole because you need to see the entire town sitting in there you need to see their 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 meeting room has to be the back room of the of the newspaper place just like the What's what's the unofficial town hall of Shinbone? Unofficial town hall. The well, the bar, the bar, or the restaurant, where, or the, yeah, right, yeah. and right, and where's all? Where are all the important decisions made in the back of the restaurant? Right, right? and so, right, right b before you have meeting houses, you have meeting houses. Before you have a before you have schools, you you have a school, and so it's it's sort of like, it's it's the nucleus of of society right and it, they, they it's not by accident that they place all the key important scenes in in other places which are just being used for this i think i i think at the end right you said we start with a train mm -hmm. right but we end with a train which is going back east mm -hmm. because the the problem is when you get sufficiently civilized civilization actually takes place in this other place called dc where they where they all have to go which is a place specific, right? There, there's no back of restaurants in DC, right? right? There, there's no meeting. There's only meeting houses in DC, right? The, in fact, the place has been purposefully architected for this thing called directing the country, which which we will do. And so I think that there's a there's a slight commentary on the way that democracy actually works, which it and and if I can articulate it into English, it would be this: democracy partly works in as far as it works. So long as you keep the people that are in the restaurants and the people that are gathering for purposes of their education in the back of the newspaper house actually running things, the structures that run the country are somehow inseparable from their daily life, right? They don't actually have a real meeting house. They have this section of the bar. And while it's a meeting house, the bar is closed, right? right? And, of, closed. And, right and of course, and of course, they say, okay, is there, you know, legally, is there anything else we have to do for this meeting? And he says, no. And that means everybody can drink. Bar's open. <laughs> right. And so I th but there, there's definitely a tension at the end, which is in order to properly run this territory, I must leave this territory. It's like, well, what is that? Right. Because the territory runs properly in a way when it's run out of the back of restaurants and the back of the newspaper place and the and the back of the bar. And it might it might be run better by accident than it is on purpose in this other place, which is purposefully built to run it right it, it, that's somehow that's separate from the idea of democracy right you have to leave the demos in order to run them that doesn't make sense and i think that th that 
that that dichotomy and tension is not in any particular scene of the film, but it's in the structure of the film, because that's where that's where the sad, you know, train whistle blows at the end. And he says, you know, how about I leave this job and we come back here to live? Well, why can't you run it from there? Well, you but but you can't. Why not? I think that's what the that's what the film that's what the film is asked. That's what the film is asking, because um, when we right, let's let's go to another dichotomy when um, when they're voting in the bar, it's very clear what Liberty Valance wants and that he's a crook from the moment that he steps in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. That he, he wants to be the delegate because he'll vote. No, he'll he'll vote uh, that everything south of the picket wire, right. you know, stays unincorporated territory, which means the big ranchers actually win. But there's another kind of crookedness that happens after Liberty Valance is dead, which is when they go to the the territory capital uh, in order to vote on who's going to on which of the delegates is actually going to go to Washington, right? And the and the guy stands up and he says, "I have a carefully prepared yeah. speech, but I'm not going to give it." And Bush it's just man. And, and it's just a and it's just a crumpled piece of paper. Which w- essentially what I think what the film is trying to say is there's levels to these things, and the problem is the poison gets more subtle the further up the scale you escalate right and you go from a meeting room which is the bar where everything is at least it's clear enough because you know people when they start but you're not sure how that oratory is going to go when the guy says you know today's not the day for oratory in his you know in his oratorical (laughs) voice the poison flows upstream right so the so the more structures you actually have to build to govern the less suitable you are for government Right. The the more the more the more you want to be a politician, right? The the less you should be. You said Gulliver's Travels before. You remember when Gulliver goes to the land of the, the ultra wise horses, one of their rules for their Congress is that if you've ever demonstrated any desire to hold public office, you are automatically disqualified. Right. Because that government governs well, which Governs least. Governs least. Right. right? Which means your, your meeting houses should be in the back of restaurants or the meeting house should be in a bar or the right. The school belongs in the place where people read and write. That all that all makes sense. Right. But what they say is, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to build this separate building over here called school and we're going to separate you from the place where ideas are formed and people read and write. And you go, well, well why? <laughs> right. Why do you have to go all the way right. over there to govern to govern me here? And I think that we can get into this when we talk about the end but but that's the actual betrayal that happens in the film yeah part of part of the betrayals as you move forward towards progress you get to a place where things are stable but that stability itself is undermined by further progress john wayne uses the bung stopper of the barrel as a gavel right and that seems to work well but then of course then eventually you get a real gavel then you get the special gavel you can only use in this this special room called the house and of course that's what happens with jimmy stewart becomes the delegate by accident when they i nominate ransom stoddard and he's like what what and and that's how we would like to imagine all of our politicians entered public life like they didn't want to do it they i did they forced me into it and that's why you're good at it but when you see him at the beginning of the film he says well i wasn't going to talk politics on this trip and And he's such a politician yes you were Yes, you are. That's why you can't go home again. All right, Dan, it's time to talk about the end of this movie, because, of course, in part three, we always talk about the ending or the title or the key takeaways. What do you got for the ending here? They're on the train and Vera Miles looks at Jimmy Stewart and says, ain't you proud, Rance? Ain't you proud? And that is the most crushing thing to say to this guy. Ain't you proud? It's exactly like when our parents would say when we were little, I hope you're proud of yourself. Are you happy? I hope you're happy. 
Now, she, of course, does not mean it that way, but he cannot help hearing it that way, and neither can we. This movie would have been great if it just ended with Lee Marvin getting killed, and you think it's Jimmy Stewart, and then Tom gets mad because he loses Vera Miles. You watch us with a first-time viewer, and it's kind of fun because you talk to them afterwards, like, wait a minute, like, it seems like the movie should be over, and there's like, wait a minute, there's like another kind of thing going on here. It's like when you watch It's a Wonderful Life, and you watch the whole story of Jimmy Stewart, and then at the end, you watch it again. The same thing kind of happens here. You watch what happens, and then you watch the real version. Diachronically, as some would say. Exactly, as some would say. The, The end of this movie reminded me this time of the end of a famous novel, which I know you've read, which I've read a million times where a woman doesn't know the truth and she's based everything on a lie, but the protagonist knows the truth and he can't say anything because it would destroy her. And that book is 1899, Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness. In Heart of Darkness, Marlowe has the chance to tell Kurtz's fiance back in England what he was like. And she says, what were his last words? Now, you know, what were Kurtz's last words? The horror. The horror, the horror. And he says, do you remember what he tells her, what his last words were? He says, his last words were, and there's a pause, and he says, your name. And she says, I knew it, I knew it. And Marlowe says, I couldn't have told her the truth. It would have been, he says it would have been too dark altogether. So at the end, right, civilization, at the end of Heart of Darkness, civilization is based on a lie. And we can get into what that lie is maybe later later on. But in this movie, of course, that his, his career is based upon a lie. And there's nothing too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance. But what are you going to do? Like, there, there's there's no reason for him to tell her unless he wants to make himself feel better. And what you said before is so true. Jimmy Stewart in the beginning can go through these fake voices, like when he's being a politician and he's like, oh, this young reporter, he's the one that asked me about it. And he's like, oh, I was going to talk politics. He's always on. He, if, you're, if you're a politician, you always have to be on. And the one moment he can be vulnerable, he can't tell her the truth. So they go back on that train, but his whole career is based on a lie. Ain't you proud, Rance? Yeah, I think one thing that I started noticing watching this movie like 10 years ago is what do they not talk about or who do you not see for a couple that's been married 30 years? Their children? Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying they're childless, but they're never mentioned. They're never right. They don't they don't say we'll pick up, you know, we'll pick up the boys and we'll take them take them with us. There's something about the marriage that's not loveless, but it is definitely childless and i that strikes me as it strikes me as very interesting because jimmy stewart never once in character as rance uh, never once tells her she's pretty never once right uh, it, with john with john wayne it, right all, all he the does. time he he tells her he tells her all the time how fair she is how beautiful she is right he compl- he brings her the cactus rose she brings him the cactus rose at the end and he idolizes her because she's the ideal citizen right why, why of course you can learn to read right he wa- he like he wants so badly to exercise civilization on something wild but he doesn't appreciate it for for what it is right he's he essentially he's looking at her as like the raw ingredients of a good citizen but right as she's a cactus rose and that's right and that's all john wayne's and that's all john wayne sees her as so what what is subtly wrong with their relationship that that they're so childless that they don't that they don't actually look exactly at one another right when he says let's move back he's looking sort of out the window at the country and she's sitting next to next to the aisle looking at the other people on the train and that's why she says ain't you proud because yeah. right you rolled into this town and there was nothing in this town and now we're taking the train from this town back to dc isn't that 
isn't that wonderful? And you can, if you remember from the second to last scene, when they get to the territory capital, he says, you know, there ain't much here, but you can take this train all the way to DC. And so, right, what's what's being said to the viewer is that the train stop has been moved two or three stops out. So now it stops in Shinbone. You can take that train all the way to DC, right? And we held the express for you. But there's something there's something subtly wrong yeah. or there's there's a, a more raw way of life, which is you can knock other people's stakes to the ground. Right. But he has an appreciation for her as a woman. And I'm not necessarily sure that that exists in their marriage the same way. That's great. He says, remember, when they go to the um, undertakers and he says, who 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 put that who put the cactus rose there? And we 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 know exactly who put the cactus rose there and why. That also reminds me of what you just said about what I happened to say earlier about people not looking at each other in this movie. And that's a great thing about their marriage. Like you have no doubt, but also, you know what? Here's another thing. Their marriage has become also part of the political process and the political machine, right? I mean, like they look like a, a successful married political couple. Yeah. And I think, I think what this movie does really well, especially post World War II is it's sort of um, it's it's the filmic version of the ones who walk away from Omelas, which is you have this beautiful, flourishing paradise, but there's something underneath the the basement of it. There's there's literally there's a corpse in a coffin, and you can't you can't see it, and it's not been paid appropriate homage, right? To to right because right, th- this is an old cliche, right? But but freedom isn't free, so mm-hmm. it requires the sacrifice of some other citizen. Yeah. Right. Who himself. Right. He, he's like like he can see the promised land, but he can't go down into it. Right. Because it's not the it's not the appropriate place for him. And the fact that he only right. You could imagine that he he dies in the fire or Pompey fails to pull him out. Right. What's happened is while the trajectory of the territory has been on the rise, you get the sense that he's been alone and drunk and degenerate and depressed. Right. And so it's it's only his suffering that makes society possible. And the fewer people that are in on it, the better. Yeah, because why? Because again, like Jimmy Stewart, like what is the point of telling everybody the truth about the man who shot Liberty Valance? He, it hurts his heart when the, when the guy says nothing's too good for the man who shot Liberty Valance. It hurts his heart, which he says ain't your proud rants. But like if he unburdens himself, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And to make himself feel better, but he knows like everything about it is messy. You're still sympathetic. You're like, you, don't, you do not end this movie scorning Jimmy Stewart. No. You, you can't because he he has the chance to tell the truth and he does and they and they throw it out because right. they've started to re, they've started to realize you think you think civilization is stable it's duct taped together <laughs> and so the question is right he, when Jimmy Stewart first rolls into town he says he says I have the right to this story and Jimmy Stewart says okay you have the right to this story here you go and he says yeah I don't I don't want that because right there are some newspaper stories which would shake the foundation of even having a newspaper in the first place and right and so it's it's against everybody's religion yeah to talk about the truth of what's going on here you just made me realize that which is like a dumb moment for me but he he does tell the story he does tell the entire truth and those reporters could ruin his career right now because he does so it's like he gets to have his confessional moment but he doesn't have it with the person he's who's supposed to be his soulmate and you get the sense that if she, you get the sense that if she were with John Wayne of course like you get the sense they would smile more if she was married to John Wayne you don't get the sense there's a lot of laughter in her marriage with Jimmy Stewart no but there would be a lot more illiterates and no railroad right 
Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the man who shot Liberty Valance. Thank you, Travis, for the recommendation. I'm so glad we talked about this movie. If you haven't seen it in a couple of years, you definitely have to go out and see it again. Right, Mike? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, it's actually for free on Prime right now. We're recording this uh, early December of 2023. So by the time you listen, it might not be, but it's well worth it. Follow us on Twitter at 15MANFilm. You can also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxed. Leave us reviews. Let us know what to watch next. We'll see you next time.